You are listening to Jewish Tech Meetup, a Jcast Network podcast. This podcast is part two of the New York City Jewish Tech Meetup that took place on Thursday, August 18th, 2011. The speaker that evening was Micah Sifri, co-founder and executive editor of the Personal Democracy Forum, as well as the author of WikiLeaks and the Age of Transparency. The New York City Jewish Tech Meetup is made possible with the help of Makom Chadash, Repair the World, and Open Source Judaism. For more information and to find out about future live events, please visit meetup.com slash jtech-nyc. The next New York City Jewish Tech Meetup will be taking place on Thursday, September 22nd, and will feature Ronen Eidelman. For more information, please visit meetup.com or jcastnetwork.org slash jtechmeetup. In part two of this meetup with Micah Sifri, Micah continues his conversation with questions and answers. As the room was not properly mic'd for this Q&A, the sound is imperfect. Where the sound was completely inaudible, I have restated the questions. We apologize that the sound was not better and hope that you will forgive us, and we are sure that you will still gain a lot from the conversation. You had your hand up back there, yeah. What's your name and and what do you do? Excellent. So, um, uh, if you could talk a little bit more about the fear, how you see it manifest itself, an anecdote, etc. Because I think that's, at some point, you know, it becomes a cliche a little bit that, not that I dispute that, but if you could give some texture to how you see that fear manifesting. Sure. And, let me, and then I just have a second part, which is that premised in your talk is that merit and truth, and, you know, that there is objectivity, right? And that there is, let me try to put this another way. Somebody confronted with facts will change their mind. But there was just a poll, for example, that said that 44% of Social Security uh, recipients say they've never gotten benefited from a government program. Okay. So what do you do with that? Okay, so, well, the first one, those are two, two questions. Um, on the first one, the types of fears I keep encountering are usually people who say, um, how could I possibly have time for this? Um, it's the drinking from a fire hose problem, and I don't have the time. Um, and, you know, that's like the biggest one, is you, it, it, it appears that you're confronting me with more work, and I don't even know how to do what I'm doing now, sort of thing. I mean, that's what, in the, in the professional arena, that's typically what you get, is I, don't, I can't even keep up with my email, how could I possibly keep up with Twitter? Um, and, I, you know, I, I mean, there are two thoughts on this. The first one is, um, no one drinks from a fire hose, we all take sips. Um, what we need are better tools for filtering the noise down to the signal that we need to hear. And the problem is is that right now it's like everybody, to stick with my printing press analogy, we all have these printing presses in our pockets and we're all noisily hitting send. And the receivers haven't been tuned well to modulate all that noise down to the right levels so that we can hear what we need to hear. 
Um, and that's where all the opportunity is right now for people who make technology is in creating better filters, tools that will help us tease the signal out so that um, you aren't just hearing white noise, but instead you're hearing you know, the 50 people who really count in Jewish education what they're talking about today, for example. Um, and so very often I think the, the, the mistake people make is that they have to do everything when they don't. But um, you know, some of this is because the people who, who make the tools, just they hand them to you without any, of, any presets so that the volume is at, at a level that you can manage. And, and for many people it's overwhelming because that you do need to be shown how you tune your, you know, you are now in a position to both send and receive, participate, talk back, but how do you work it so that it actually works well for you? Um, I see hands up on this, so hold your second question, we'll come back to it, yeah. Go ahead. Just to comment on this, if the signal to noise ratio of someone I follow is putting out too much noise, I just stop listening, period. I don't need to filter, I don't need to listen to everyone and try to pick out that little nugget or whatever is coming through. If I see too much garbage coming through, I say I don't need that and I don't listen. Right, I, look, I, you know, a lot of this is about slowly learning new cultural norms. Um, that person also is losing something when you shut off, unfortunately, which is they don't know why you stopped listening. So they can't even change what they're doing. I mean, right now you and I, are we're, we're having Nonverbal communication, right? I mean, we 95% of communication is nonverbal, uh, but online you lose all of that. You lose all those extra signifiers. Um, and so I think what we will see progressively is better and better tuning tools so that, yeah, if your friend is, is just making too much noise, you have a, 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 an appropriate way of sort of tapping them on the shoulder and saying, hey, you know, no one's listening. If you, if, you, if you just cut it back a little bit, maybe we would. So that's a, a process that's going to continue to take shape. Um, and in the meantime, you've got a perfectly good solution, right? Everybody keeps coming up with their own solution to how do I make this work for me, but you're already confident about it, right? Whereas I, uh, I, I'm still amazed at how many people I, I run into, and they're typically, you know, of a, a slightly older generation, the, not, not so much the, the you know, people in their 20s, uh, who respond to this need to jump in with terror because uh, they don't know how they're going to handle the flood. I think my competence, as you put it, is that I don't see this as such value, or perhaps as some people might think it is. I don't get so much value from it, and therefore it's easy for me to say I can pick and choose. Sure. It, it also varies based on what, what kind of work you do or what, what kind of things you're interested in. But you're, you're not in that position, I guess, in the, the work that you do, where kind of social listening is of utmost benefit to, to your job, right? I mean, you do develop right. social networks, but you don't necessarily do social listening right. as you're not a politician, you're not a community leader. You can't engage in a kind of direct democratic or just a direct feedback loop with your constituents. Right? Like you don't have that kind of constituency or that need, but but the amazing thing about kind of what's happening now is you know 
Cory Booker is on Twitter, somebody in Newark gets snowed in, sends a tweet to the mayor, and the mayor drives over with a shovel and starts digging the guy out of his driveway. You know, like that kind of radical transformation was never possible before the advent of tools like Twitter. You know, so there, there is a bonus there. But with the signal-to-noise ratio, I mean, I think, like, for example, one of the things that Twitter is absolutely missing that's totally essential is a mute button. You know, stop receiving tweets from this person for a specific time frame. Right. So, like, if I'm in the middle of a fight with somebody on Twitter, as is known to happen, you can just, like, <laughs> silence me in your stream for a couple hours so you miss the fight, but then can receive normal communications from me again afterwards. Follow and then follow again? Except you'll forget to follow the person again. I feel like it'd be great if you could do, like, search words. Like, I want to hear when you talk about this, and I definitely don't want to hear when you mention this. You know, like... Yeah. That would be right. Yeah, you had your hand up. Um, when you're talking about development and filters, I mean, isn't that kind of just a pendulum swinging back to quote unquote old fashioned? No, I'll tell you why not. It, the pendulum is here's how it isn't the pendulum swinging back because the you hold the control of the filter in your hands. Okay, back in the days when there was just you know NBC ABC and CBS and everybody in America got their news from you know uh, Dan and Tom and and Peter um, all the control of the filters were in their hands the news producers the editors uh, it was a pretty small group um, they still matter a little bit but nowhere near as much as they used to and now for example one of the filters I choose to listen to is the filter I create by the people I choose to follow, okay? So that's highly self-defined. Uh, um, and what I get from that is largely dependent on my taste. If, if you're the type of person who only wants to hear from people exactly like you, you, you may create yourself a fairly narrow you know, pool to listen to, and and then if you filter it and just tease out the signal, you'll get some very, very, you know, similar things. Um, or you can be somebody who likes serendipity. You want to be surprised. You want to hear things you didn't know. You want to pay attention to people who you think are smart but have eclectic tastes. Um, all those controls are in your hands now. Uh, and I, I keep saying to people, the role of editors isn't going to go away. It's just that lots and lots more people can play that role, or algorithms can play that role. Um, and in some cases, the editor of, of The New Yorker will still play that role. Uh, but it is no longer that you only have the one choice of an elite who, in some cases, did, never earned their status. Uh, but they inherited it, or they got it because they knew the right person, or they went to the right school. Um, so to go back to your question about the facts, like, yeah. The problem is, is that you, know, you see these silos. Like I decide that I love Fox News, so I set my whole world up to get only Fox News and only get Wall Street Journal and et cetera, et cetera. I only read the conservative blogs. Like elite, hey, look, this you know, ideally. Right. Well, Eli Pariser is arguing a version of this, which is is actually more. It, it's different. Um, the first version is... The algorithm piece, and there's also, again, the person... Right, the confirmation yeah. bias is a very, very powerful force. I, I don't disagree. So do At, you well, you know, the question is whether you trust people to 
be able to make the decisions that matter in their own lives, or you think you should make them for them? I mean, this is like the fundamental philosophical question. And if you think that people are stupid, or, or you know, uh, will fall into these mistakes and stick in them their whole lives, then you, you better be in favor of making decisions for them, right? On the other hand, if you think that over time people will learn and make better decisions and you have to just let that happen and every other system that tries to make the decisions for them makes worse decisions because it doesn't self-correct either. Um, I mean, but this is a, you know, this, I, there, this isn't a settled question. I agree with you. I mean, it's possible that in the short run we will make the worst decision. <laughs> um, and you know, uh, we'll only come to the best decision after we've tried all the other, all the other ones. And whether you can afford that, I don't know. Um, I, I, I know my, my philosophy is that I would rather spread out knowledge um, and allow for more voices so that we can surface uh, both the, the disagreements that need to be surfaced and, and the wisdom that needs to be surfaced. But that doesn't guarantee that it'll happen. If you look at the, the, the way our public discourse works in America right now, you'd say it's broken. I don't think the internet is breaking it. I think other things are breaking it. I think the internet maybe can help fix it, okay? But I'm in the middle of, you know, we're in a big uncontrolled experiment here, and there are more than one variable at work. Um, whenever somebody says to me, look at how bad, you know, uh, and you know your social security poll number is a perfectly good example of how large numbers of people can be misguided and misinformed. All I want to know is when was it ever better? Okay, I mean, was it truly better before we, you know, were people better informed? I mean, if you polled Americans in 1955, they would say that blacks were happy. You know, second-class citizenship. What are you talking about? Um, so. I, I think the, the, the part of the challenge is recognizing that this is a process. Um, what I like about the new situation we're in is that agency is now in my hands. If I fail to use it, it's my fault. Um, and the same for my neighbors. You know, whenever I hear somebody complaining about uh, the president or, or Congress, I'm, at a certain point, I say, listen, you know, your criticisms may well be right, but what are you doing about them? And don't tell me there's nothing you can do. There's more things you can do now than you could ever do before. Um, so if you're not doing something, why are you complaining? Right? Whereas 10 years ago, if you wanted to enter the public arena, you couldn't. If you wanted to somehow reach beyond the group of people that you could speak to, maybe with a microphone, right? You couldn't. You had to be invited on to some broadcast platform by somebody else who controlled it. Now, you have a broadcast platform in your hands. If you don't use it, that's your choice. Um, what, what to me is the big challenge is the noise level right now is overwhelming. And we, because it's happening so fast, it's hard to understand it. Um, and until we produce better and better tools for filtering it, and then we can begin to see what all this noise actually means. 
Every day, somebody is inventing a new and amazing way to discover meaning from the noise. Like, I'll give you one of my favorite examples. It's just a random one. Um, Google has discovered that it can pre predict with uh, great accuracy a couple weeks ahead of the Centers for Disease Control where flu is breaking out. And it does this based on people searching for words like flu and, and the symptoms and, and, and so on, okay? And so you can see in Google search trends that searches for flu peak about two weeks before the CDC statistics show the same uh, shifts in, in its incidents. And one of the things Google has done, which is really nice with this data, is uh, they've worked out a partnership with the CDC so that if you search for those kinds of words, in the search results will come information from the CDC about what to do if you think you have the flu. Um, now that's like a tiny improvement in how we do public health, but you know it's sort of magic. Um, and it's based on Google noticing that there was actually signal in the, in the search noise. Um, and there's example and example of this. Um, so I, you know, for me, that's really interesting as a meta trend. I, I kind of want to take this back to the Jewish piece, just because this is a Jewish tech meetup. So I'm wondering if, if thoughts on that theme. Yeah. Well, I had a question. That yeah. Say okay. Um, you spoke about WikiLeaks and, the new, and you know this new era of transparency. So, is there a area within the Jewish world that you think would greatly benefit or greatly change from a much more transparency? Well, I think there are lots of things. I mean, I think it's a big challenge because the Jewish world as I see it is sort of split between lots of sort of traditional older legacy organizations that are trying to reproduce themselves by convincing the next generation to be just like them and with some success and another wave of people who are like, no, that ain't for me, I'm gonna create something new and, and their problem is, is how do you sustain these new things that you're creating because they're fragile. Um, and uh, you know how that plays out, I'm, I'm not really sure. Um, in, inherently, I think transparency can drive more accountability. One of the problems we have is the role of money. Um, so to the degree that uh, foundations play a big, you know, have disproportionate weight or particular philanthropists, the more transparency we have about how those decisions are made and, and whether people can be held accountable for bad decisions or you know, what, what are the metrics for measuring the value of those sorts of investments, um, that's a good thing. But it's deeply destabilizing. Um, the same goes for uh, 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 you know, a project that, that Dan uh, uh, started, you know, the, uh, the Shul Shopper idea, which is that you know, why shouldn't congregants and, and people who are thinking about where to join a congregation be able to see what other people have to say about congregations, right? It's like Yelp for, for synagogues. Um, that's a deeply destabilizing uh, uh, idea. Um, <laughs> right. Do you guys notice anything about the children at all? Do you know if he 
<laughs> well, I bet you you would get a mix of positive and negative, you know, because there are all these sites like RateMyTeacher.com and RateMyProfessor, um, and teachers and professors get really nervous about them, and then it turns out that something like 60% of the comments on these sites are positive. Um, people don't just go online to trash, they also go online to praise. Um, so I think that, you know, allowing for that open uh, sharing of information would be ultimately healthy, but in the short term it might also be destabilizing. Um, and, and that's hard. People are not used to dealing with that level of, of, um, of transparency. And, you know, it's scary. Um, you know, for example, I can find out, it wouldn't take me very long to look up whether any of you have made a campaign contribution and who you've made it to. That's public record. Um, in fact, when you make a contribution, you kind of know that. If it's over a certain amount, depends where. Um, the fact that it's public record doesn't bother you. If I bring it up now in conversation, it will bother you because I'm sort of breaking a, a norm. Um, and that's what this information revolution is, is creating, is lots of norm, potential norm breaking. And for many people, it's just not comfortable yet. child abuse and sexual abuse in the Jewish community, mm -hmm. um, which is that you had bloggers, particularly one blogger had a blog called Unorthodox Jew, who was outing uh, child molesters in the yeshiva community in Brooklyn. <laughs> and um, he was responsible for bringing to justice uh, one serial pedophile who had assaulted dozens of children in the course of his career and had been moved from one yeshiva to the next and one camp to yeah. the next. Because just like the Catholic Church, the ultra-Orthodox community was covering it up and intimidating the parents of the children, telling them that they would destroy their lives if they go public with the information. So uh, the response of the ultra-Orthodox establishment was not to you know, uh, embrace this openness in conversations about these issues so that they could save the lives of young children, but to condemn bloggers in general, to say that all blogs are usser and shouldn't be read, that the internet in and of itself is a demonic force and anti-Jewish and shouldn't be allowed in your home. Um, and that that's the threat, right? The threat is that we are actually by pursuing openness and transparency and, and putting these conversations on the table, threatening establishment Jewish organizations, establishment Jewish leaders, establishment Jewish institutions, and they're pushing back by demonizing and condemning the people who are pushing for openness. And it's in the same regard that you know Bradley Manning is you know sitting uh, in, a, in a cell, uh, unable to see the Red Cross, unable to see anybody in the public, unable to really speak to a lawyer. You know he's under military tribunal uh, because of what he did. And it's just a way of trying to preempt any kind of open conversation of the issues at hand. So it, it, I, I think, we're, like I said before, um, the best way to think about this is to say, I'm, at, I'm in year five of the invention of the printing press. And it took 100 years for that revolution to begin, for the dust from that to begin to settle. Um, and so the, that sort of sense of dislocation and confusion is going to be with us for a while. Um, and tricking out the, the valuable parts as well as the dangerous parts is one of our challenges. Um, you know, I think that 
you know, and we encountered this recently. Avichai did a, a project that involved working with 10 day schools, training them in using social media, and then inviting them to do a couple of things, one of which is a small donor uh, match. The idea is try to involve more, uh, just $18 donors um, to a particular day school to help them build their, their base um, and through Facebook. Um, and interestingly enough, there was uh, some fairly strong pushback from some of the schools uh, about the Facebook part of it um, because there's this sense of it being this dangerous territory uh, where, you know, in some cases, it's enabling mixing of the sexes. Um, and in some cases, we're not really sure what the, what the objection was, but there is a sense of it's... Uh, you know, our kids shouldn't be there. Um, and, you know, I expect this to, to take some time to play out. Um, frankly, I, I'm not so sure Facebook is this wonderful thing. I mean, I think they've done some things that are basically evil in how they treat people's privacy. Um, and I use it sparingly uh, because I don't really think they're being as... Um, uh, you know, they, 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 they're not respecting their users the way they should because they start out saying, well, this stuff will be private, and then the next thing you know, they've moved the goalposts. And you, you have to go proactively and then say, no, I don't want this to be shared, and I don't want that to be shared. It's amazing how much data Facebook now exposes to the world. Um, if you want to be have fun or be shocked, uh, there's a website called youropenbook.org, um, which uh, you can put in any search phrase you like, and you will see people's Facebook updates using that phrase. You know, so like you, you know, look up "hate my boss" or you know "had an affair." Um, it's shocking what people are sharing, thinking they're only sharing it with their friends, um, and not realizing that this is now part of their public uh, data trail. And that's because Mark Zuckerberg and, and his team have moved the goalposts several times to make what used to be private more and more public. That's so they can sell ads uh, more efficiently. Um, so I think Facebook's kind of creepy and, and maybe isn't the place. Uh, but since everybody's there, there's a sense of you have to be there too. Why, there are lots of alternatives. I mean, you know, to me, the, the, where, where are we going with this conversation? We have to become, we need a Magna Carta for, for uh, uh, you know, the, the online space. I mean, we need user rights. We need to control our own data. Um, if I want to share my data with a business, okay, but let me control the terms of that uh, uh, sharing, not the business setting them on me. Um, and right now, that pendulum has swung too far in the direction of these new big platform sites. But the one silver lining to me is that it, it's, it's not stable for Facebook. They can't take for granted that we will always use it. It happens to be the winner right now. Um, then comes along Google+, which is actually one of its design features is to make it much easier to segment who you're sharing with. So you are not accidentally 
putting it out there for everybody to see. Um, and that's a smart design choice on their part. Uh, they've made other design choices that maybe aren't so smart, like requiring people to use their real names, which isn't always something you can do. Um, but then fine, don't use Google+. You see, at, at the end of the day, the, the best solution is to run your own site, <laughs> you know, to really be the, the, the hub of your own data. Um, I haven't heard much more. I, I mean, it's still in development. Um, yeah, yeah. Diaspora is this attempt to build a, a basically a user-centric type of Facebook, um, and uh, I don't think they've they've really taken off yet. Uh, but they're not the only ones working on that problem. Um, so rather than assume this is the reality for the future going forward. It's more like, okay, what do we have to learn? How do we become more di digitally literate? Um, and what questions should I be asking as an informed user? This is hard, though. <laughs> um, the world now is at your fingertips, but you have to decide how to use them. And too often people don't, you know, they just give me the, hand me the clicker and I'll just, you know, take whatever you beam at me. That's the, that's the way we were brought up. And now we actually have a great deal more power. Um, what gives me a lot of optimism is as I watch my kids who are teenagers, um, who, you know, they are much more um, savvy, literate users of digital tools than their parents. Um, it's just native to them. They've adapted because they are such heavier users. Uh, not that they're perfect users, but you know, uh, they're more, they have more common sense. Other thoughts on the Jewish piece of this? Um, I mean, are there dilemmas that people face in their, in, yeah, go ahead. I actually work at the Jewish Week. Do you think that there is nothing helpful about some kind of journalistic organ? I, 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 I have my own journalistic organ. I, of course I think they're beneficial. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, you are now one of many, rather than the only one. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think it's a really good thing that you have competition now. Um, and hopefully competition will make you better, or it'll kill you. Um, that's just how it works. Uh, you cannot rely on that sort of monopoly position that you once had. The TV networks have to work harder to get an audience, and they're not doing a very good job because they're run by stupid people. Um, but that doesn't bother me because I'd like to see all those people lose their jobs. I, I mean, I think a lot of, I have friends who worked at all the TV news networks in the last 20 years, and um, there was a very brief point in, earlier in my career where I thought about going from print to TV, and they all said to me, don't come here. <laughs> There's no such thing as serious news anymore. We do infotainment. Um, and most of us are depressed and want to get out of here. Um, so, you know, if those places die, no one will, will have lost very little for it. Um, the faster it happens, the better. Uh, what we will, we still have demand for quality news, and it's going to be supplied by people who know how to supply quality news. Um, what we won't have is a mass audience for quality news, because until Education in the United States improves. Um, 
people aren't demanding it. We, we, I mean, that's a deeper problem. Uh, but it isn't going to be solved by saying somehow let's go roll the clock back to 1968 when there were only three TV networks. You can't do that. I mean, cable killed that way before the internet. What, however, what's to me really exciting is that if you are one of the 20 to 30 million people who actually wake up every day and they don't just read the news, but they participate in sharing and filtering and making news, um, that's a new phenomenon that has weight in the system that affects every, everything else. Uh, it's many more eyes watching um, and potentially influencing the conversation that is the public conversation. There's still a much larger group of people, to your point, who are low information voters, low information news consumers. They just check maybe the headline and the weather and the sports and tune out most of the time. And our challenge is how do you grow that group of 20 to 30 million into something more like 60 million? Um, but the trend line, here, here's the best trend line I've ever seen. TV watching is, is slowly going down and internet usage is going up. Um, the number of PCs that people buy way surpassed the number of TV, TVs that people buy a couple of years ago. Um, so, and cord cutting is the rising phenomenon. Cord cutting, you mean in, as in not having a landline? I just canceled my cable television service. And oh, yeah. That, yeah. And I've replaced my cable box with a Roku. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but you're not getting live news from that. Well, actually, you can get live stream uh, of Al Jazeera English, BBC International. Is Al Jazeera on Roku? Yeah. I didn't know that. Al Jazeera, BBC, Russia Today. So all the propaganda news networks are on there. <laughs> and you can get uh, the Fox News included. Um, and, uh, you can't yet get any of the, the major networks, but you can get their podcasts. Huh. Okay, I, that's cool. Eh, podcasts have a life too. If you if you need to time shift, um, so they they do have some value. So anyway, back to what the what does this mean for journalism? Okay, that's sort of the question you're asking. So here's what I've seen take place for journalism as the as blogs and interactive media kind of came up alongside them first. They hated it, and they ridiculed them, okay? Um, the Washington Post's a good example of this. Uh, you know, they absolutely, like, no way are we gonna have anything to do with those bloggers. They're just, you know, dirty hippies in their pajamas. They're not real professionals like us. Then the Post made a decision to start embedding on article pages uh, a little box that showed um, links from blogs to that article. Um, and the initial response of the reporters was, why are we inviting the bloggers onto, uh, you know, that's my story, right? Um, why do I have to share space with those people? Six months later, their attitude completely flipped into, look how many people are linking to my news story, right? I have more, I have more influence. Now, uh, there are people who, at these major news organizations, are also being asked to blog, and what they will say is what some of the very earliest people to start blogging said back at the beginning of it, which is, my audience knows more than me. And if I listen, it makes me smarter. It makes my journalism better. Frequently, the best articles are the ones that are just the beginning points for a conversation. And then you read the comments, and the comments are even better. 
And certain people know how to do this. They actually invest the time in interacting with their readers. Well, well, the comments, look, there are certain really contentious issues where this breaks down, and I don't really know what the solution is, because uh, it's like that's a symptom of a larger problem. Um, but there's a great deal of, of uh, journal, you know, of, of sites now. The New York Times, for example, has done something to dramatically improve the quality of their comments. They used to stink because they did nothing to moderate them. So all you got was people shouting or people, you know, off topic. And now you actually see moderation. And so the comments on somebody's post on, on the New York Times website uh, or blog post, or whatever, will often actually add more. Um, and they're learning also to do a kind of journalism that engages the audience in that fleshing out the story, which is something only, only big media can do um, because it already has this big audience to tap. Well, frequently you, look, the, the Times has asked people to send in pictures of, you know, whatever, and you get a photo montage of, of whatever it may be. I mean, when, the, when that, uh, those tornadoes hit Brooklyn, for example, the, the, the pictures that people sent in were better than what the Times could have gotten on its own. They used one of yours, really. So, so I think the opportunity for legacy, you know, uh, outfits like the Jewish Week is to ask, how can we tap the wisdom of our readers? How do, we, how do we enrich what our journalism already is by thinking of articles as starting points, not ending points? You didn't finish the story, you just started it. Um, and you know, engage and expose that, that conversation and actually give people, this is the thing that surprises me, is that I, I've yet to see any Jewish website own the space. Um, there, there just hasn't been, no one's really gone after it that way. It said, we're going to be the hub for all the voices in the Jewish community. And now, to what Daniel said before, it may just be because certain topics are too divisive, and so you just couldn't do it. Uh, I don't really know. I don't really know the answer to that. Right, and it may just be because it's too divided. Right? I mean, if you look at the political you know, web or you look at the tech web, there is no one site that rules them all. Um, there, there are a couple that are big community hubs. Uh, Daily Coast is a big community hub. It has you know, 300,000 registered users. It's got more than half a million unique visitors a day. And they bubble up all kinds of interesting stuff on their homepage every day. Uh, it is not a site run by one person. It's run by hundreds of contributors every day. Um, and what I mean is no, there is no place in the Jewish community that plays that kind of role. Daily Kos, Daily K-O-S. It's the biggest liberal political website in the United... It's the biggest political site in the United States by audience participation. It's really... You should think of it as a small city as opposed to just being a website. Um, I mean, it's got politics news, but it also has sections, you know, people post uh, their gardening pictures, people post what books they're reading, people who are in mourning. Uh, there's a, a, a place on Daily Coast once a week where people who are going through that share with each other. Um, you know, there's a yeah. site called progressivejews.org that's supposed to be like Daily Coast for the progressive Jewish community. 
negotiation with one Jewish organization that was interested in supporting the site that pulled out because they didn't want to give the project editorial independence to allow writers to just write whatever they wanted that wasn't approved by their board of directors as part of the process of publishing. Ouch. Yeah, I mean, Juicy, I think, has about 25,000. Uh, yeah, Juicy, yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Sorry. Look, 